While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. He saw Jesus. He well, when he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, "Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean." Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. "I am willing," he said. "Be clean." And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, "Don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them." Yet the news spread about him all the more, so that the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Thank you, McKenna. This morning, a question for us as we open up, uh, and that is, in the morning when you wake up, what is the very first thing that you do as you wake up in the morning? Um, other than go to the bathroom, that's what it is. And for most of us, my guess is it would be reaching for our phones. Right? That are usually kind of right there. Or at the night, that's the last activity you're doing before you drift off to sleep. And again, for many of us, it's probably social media posts that's something to do with the news, the phone kind of being there right in our hand. And I, I wanted to chat a little bit about that. There's this guy named Tristan Harris. He's come a little famous in the last couple of years because he was in a Netflix documentary that was called Social Dilemma. And if you haven't seen it and you use a phone, you should probably watch it. I think the social dilemma should be required viewing kind of like gun safety classes are when you buy a gun. Getting a phone is kind of the same kind of thing. It should be required viewing for anyone that uses social media or a phone. And uh, there's so much research out there on the danger that social media and phones have in our lives. But Tristan Harris is what's, had a role of what was called a Google design ethicist. And he was involved in the technology behind it. And since then, he, he's done a lot of work of helping people to be, understand, uh, be aware of kind of the dangers of it. And um, back in 2016, he, he wrote an article for Medium, and it's up here. It's called, uh, uh, what is it? The, How Technology is Hijacking Your Mind from a Magician and a Google Design Ethicist. And in this article, Tristan, who's an expert in studying how technology exploits our mind's weaknesses to keep us addicted and to keep us going back to our phone, and he talks about how that works. It's a fascinating article. Everyone should read it. But he begins by saying, when using technology, we often focus optimistically on all the things it does for us. And he says in this article, but I want to show us where it might do the opposite. And the point being there that we are really optimistic when, it thinks, when we think of all the wonderful benefits we get from social media and phone use. Um, and we, we've, we are way too optimistic in this regard. But where does technology exploit our mind's weaknesses? That's kind of the, the point of this article. And, and he compares it to the way that magicians influence people. Without even realizing it, magicians influence us. And, and it shows how social media companies like Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat of how they do it. And he says, once you know how to push people's buttons, you can play them like a piano. And this is exactly what product designers do to your mind. They play your psychological vulnerabilities, consciously and unconsciously, against you in the race to grab your attention. Now, there's so many ways that they do this, but one of the biggest ways they do it, he describes, is the way companies have turned our phones into the most addictive device on the planet by making them like slot machines, right? This is the technology and the science that they've used with it. And the reason that slot machines are so, excess, is so success, successful in creating addiction is an incredibly addictive thing, is because they use an idea that's called intermittent variable rewards, right? This idea that the, the reward is intermittent and it's variable. You don't know when it's going to happen or what it's going to be worth. And it means that you never know exactly what you're going to get or how desirable the outcome will be, but you're expecting something will eventually come. And studies have been proven in casinos that show that if you, the more you vary the rate of the reward, the more addictive the item is. 
And this is the exact technology that companies have used. And they've even hired PhDs in addiction sciences, not to help with addiction, but to create addiction, right? To make it more addictive for our desires. And, and the result of all this is the average person checks their phone more than 150 times a day, right? If you're on the younger end, it's higher on the, and I guess sometimes the older end's higher as well, I guess these days. But uh, every time we refresh our email or we check Instagram or we, we pick up our phone and click on a notification, it's like pulling down on the handle of a slot machine. It's thinking, what reward am I going to get this time? And it, it's, or like Press Your Luck from the 90s. That was a favorite great game show back in the 90s. You know, like big money, no whammies. What am I going to get out of this one, right? We're waiting for that reward that's going to come. And every time we scroll, we don't know what that reward looks like. And so we're constantly addicted to keep kind of hitting refresh again and again to get that reward. Every time you see that notification number next to an app or every time your phone buzzes in your pocket. I mean, they've done so many studies that just all they got to do is make your phone buzz. And all of a sudden, our brain is wondering, what's the reward? What's the reward? And we got to go back to it. It's, if you've been in a conversation with someone and the phone buzzes on the table and their eyes are just looking, they don't want to be rude, but I got to check. It might be something that would be good. Where does that come from? It's that slot machine effect. We're wondering, what is the reward to come? In fact, there was a study by UC Berkeley done in 2019 that did brain scans of all this stuff. And it found that that slot machine effect from a phone triggers the same dopamine center in the brain as it does from doing drugs or from uh, like winning the lottery or winning money of some kind. It's the same kind of effect upon our brains. The mind is just locked in wanting to know what kind of reward is coming as a result. So, and this is just one of so many ways our smartphones are scientifically engineered to create addictions. And it's no surprise that the first thing we think in the morning when we wake up is we need to pull on that slot machine. What reward awaits me as we wake up? And so we want to know who liked my photo maybe that I posted the previous day or who might have sent me a message, even though it's probably just spam. Who responded to my comments or what important news happened last night that I missed while I was sleeping? I mean, we get FOMO literally from being asleep for eight hours. Right? The first thing we want to know when we wake up is what happened while I was sleeping. What did I miss between sleeping and waking? And, and it's not just that we're prone towards social media usage. We don't naturally feel this way, but we've been, these items or these devices have been engineered to create addiction for us. And I'm not saying throw away your phone, though it wouldn't be a bad idea, but it's, it's that this is the reason it's so hard to put phones down at night. It's the reason that we run to them in the mornings. Now, personally, for me, my greatest addiction isn't social media. I actually got rid of most of that uh, a few, number of years ago because, to be honest, the reason is I honestly felt I wasn't strong enough for it. Because as I looked at social media and started posting stuff, I found that I was, as Dallas Willard describes it, I was struggling with impression management. I was always trying to curve and shape the way people viewed me through what I posted and how I wrote it and how I tried to you know, be just a little bit funny but not too funny, not look like you're trying hard, and, and just all that stuff. And the, I just realized it, it consumed too much of my energy, so I just got rid of it. But my addiction isn't that. My addiction is stupid videos on Facebook, you know, that little video tab, and the Buy Nothing group, that one as well. But, uh, and, and like, I mean, just the other night, I mean, I don't even keep my phone by my bed. It goes in my office. It charges in there. And the other night, just like two nights ago, I put my phone away. But before, I just, for some stupid reason, want to check a video. And literally 90 minutes later, I'm like, what the heck happened? Like, darn you, Mark Rover and Mr. Beast, right? You guys are far too fascinating of things of information that's out there or just stupid videos. But um, it's that slot machine effect of, of kind of pulling down, wondering what kind of reward am I going to get? And this is why Tristan begins by saying, when using technology, we often focus optimistically on all the things that it does for us. And we really kind of have that view. But in actuality, we are not smarter than our phones. They are far smarter than us. Billions and billions of dollars have gone into the technology to make these devices so addictive. 
and yet we think we can control it when actually we're the ones being controlled, right? They are controlling us, and almost every one of us is deceived if we think that we can control it. We don't recognize the power of having billions of dollars of technology sitting on the side of our bed as we sleep. And it's not by accident that we binge watch Netflix in the evenings frequently. It's been scientifically engineered to create an addictive experience for us. And this is why we must be vigilant, in my opinion, to keep phones out of our bedrooms and definitely away from our nightstands. Because we're going to talk about today, this is way too much of a temptation for so many of us, I'd say most of us, to be able to make use of those special, those, those beautiful times we have in the mornings and then the evenings before the day begins. In my opinion, having a phone next to your nightstand is like an alcoholic having a bottle of Jack Daniels sitting next to open next to their bedside table, right? It's just right there and the temptation is just way too great. So, so why am I talking about this? Not that I hate phones or social media, though sometimes I do, but it has to do far more with the fact that today I want to talk about Jesus's life of prayer. And I genuinely think that that is one of the greatest things, and we'll, we'll talk more about today, about what keeps us from being able to have times with Jesus, is our addiction to these devices and to these senses, these, these, poor, these, these media devices. Now, everything that Jesus did came out of his relationship with the Father, right? He was deeply communing in relationship with the Father through the Spirit. And that's what we've been talking about this whole series, that he lived this life of abiding in God and ab through the Holy Spirit. And he models this life for us of a life in the Spirit. And so this morning, I want to look a bit at Luke's gospel, specifically because Luke writes things that most of the other authors, even of the synoptic gospels that all tell the similar stories about Jesus, Luke includes things none of the rest include because he's writing it for a different purpose. He's writing to this dude named Theophilus, who is this most likely this, this Roman person of influence, and he's trying to explain to him who Jesus is and all that he's done. And he really focuses on his humanity and specifically on Jesus's prayer life. And so I want for us to look at that this morning. Now remember, as we head into this, and even in the whole series of looking at the humanity of Jesus, that we're trying to see how Jesus, the human being, lived, like what his life looked like. And so as we do this, again, we, we could focus on all the miracles and all the crazy stuff he did of walking on water and, and raising the dead and, and all those other things, and that's great, but I'm really wanting us to look at not the sensational stuff, but just the normal, everyday ways in which he lived his life, what was normal for him. For us to be able to see that, and my hope is to kind of reshape the way we read the Gospels and the way we see Jesus. To be able to recognize that he's not this superhero way out there that is untouchable, but God became one of us. He now is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And now we can actually learn from him, see what his life is like, and then we can now live the way that he has lived. We can learn from him as we talked about last week. All right, so let's jump into Luke. The first story we're going to look at is the baptism of Jesus in Luke chapter 3. And here, Luke includes a detail that no one, none of the other authors do. So let's look at that. Verse 21 of chapter 3 says, When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And he was, praying, and he was praying, Heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice from heaven came, saying, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now here we see that baptism of Jesus. He's being baptized along with many others. And many of us may know the story well of where the, the dove comes down upon him and the father speaks out over him. But I don't know how many of us see that little detail that's included in Luke that's not in the other ones. And that's prior to the dove coming. What is Jesus doing there? It's saying he's praying. As he's being baptized, Jesus is in prayer right in the very center of this activity. And it precedes even the spirit coming. And again, remember that the, in the Gospels, we all the Gospels together maybe cover like about 100 days of Jesus' entire public ministry. 
And so every event we see, we must recognize, is likely being extrapolated out for the rest of the time. But Jesus is here praying in the midst of his baptism what's going on. And I'm pointing this out because this is what's normal for him. Throughout the events of his life, as he's engaging, prayer is not just a morning or an evening activity for him, but Jesus prays as a way of life. It's, it's a rhythm of his life, how he engages the world. So after this, and after a successful ministry in Capernaum, the crowds are growing and they're trying to follow after Jesus and he's healing many and demons are being cast out. And it says next, in the next chapter that Jesus gets up early in the morning. And so look at, let's look at Luke chapter 4, verse 42. It says, at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. It says, the people were looking for him. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. Now, Jesus' life is very full. All sorts of people have been healed, and now he's getting mobbed left and right. And, and the crowds of sick people, and, and even more so, like the friends and the family of the sick people, are bringing their, their, their family to him, bringing their friends. Everyone is vying for Jesus' attention at this point. He's the most popular guy around. And they're begging for time from him. And, and, and Jesus is so successful, but he's not letting it go to his head. But in the midst of all of this chaos and all the demands and all the people who are hungry and hurting and, and dying, what does Jesus do in the midst of all of this? He gets away to a solitary place for prayer. In the midst of all, he leaves behind hurting people, demon-filled people, people who are, need healing. He leaves the people who are desperate for his touch. He leaves them and goes to a solitary place and takes time with the Lord in prayer. Now, I, I'm, I'm going to keep hitting this because we have to see this over and over again in Jesus' life. You can't lose sight of this. Jesus needs time with the Father. He requires it. Even though he is God, he requires it. He needs this time of solitude. And he leaves ministry and people who are hurting, who are probably angry when he walks away. Imagine being the next person in line to see Jesus with your dying daughter, your hurting son, or your demon-possessed kid. And Jesus walks away saying, I need some me time right now for me and the Lord. They would not be real happy with that, but he knows that he needs it as a human being, and so he walks away and spends time with the Father. Jesus needed this time with him. And so we can see that Jesus gets up early when no one else is around so he can get quality time with his Father and spend time with him. Even that gets interrupted. All right, so now let's jump to chapter 13, or sorry, chapter 15. Um, no, where am I at? Okay, no, chapter, sorry, we're in Luke chapter 5, we're, let's jump to verse 12. And he says, while Jesus was in one of the towns, this is the story of Jesus with the leper. We looked at it last week briefly. He says, while Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Verse 13, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Verse 14, then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. All right, so we saw this last week when Jesus touches the leper, this person who is alone, and he brings healing on him. And, and then Jesus tells him afterwards, don't tell anyone. Why does he say that? Because Jesus doesn't want to get mobbed. He's not ready yet for all ministry to be able to be impossible. And so he says, can you please keep this quiet? Don't tell anyone. And I love this. I mean, Jesus, his plan is that he can do his thing in secret for a while longer. He heals out of compassion, not because he's trying to get a following at this point. And as a side note, I love this because Jesus actually thinks, Jesus, the human being, thinks he can control the crowds. 
He thinks that he could keep this on the download, like keep it under the radar and healing people, but he doesn't realize he can't. People are telling regardless, and huge crowds come and mob him. The more he tries, the more people come, right? There's nothing he can do about it. And then what happens in the next verse? In verse 15, he says, Yet the news about him spread all the more. So that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. So every effort he made failed, but then check this, verse 16. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So his attempt to remain undercover backfires, and people are mobbing him, and his response to all this craziness is he withdraws to lonely places and prays. He often gets away to be alone with his Father and in prayer. This is the rhythm of Jesus' life. This is his lifeblood. This is his foundation. This is how he handles the pressures that he's dealing with. It's how he handles the overwhelming needs, the endless demands for his time, the endless demands for his energy and love. He gets away to lonely places and prays. Now let's look at the next instance in Luke, and that's going to be chapter 6 and verse 12. He says, One of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. And when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. So now Jesus spends the whole night in prayer in this story. Now, why take such an incredible amount of time in prayer for Jesus? What is he doing here? This is where he's choosing the 12 disciples. Now, this is, again, fascinating because Jesus, God, incarnate in human flesh, he doesn't actually have full understanding of who should be the 12 disciples or how to do this process. So prior to making this massive decision of who these 12 guys that he will invest in, he spends the entire night in prayer. Even Jesus, the Son of God, required extended time in prayer to make this big decision. He already is spending massive amount of times with the Father. You'd think that Jesus, the Son of God, the one who says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It seems like this Jesus wouldn't need an extra time. He should just know the answer as he's talking to people. But even Jesus requires an extended amount of time to be with his Father. Now let's look at the next chapter, a couple chapters later in Luke chapter 9, verse 18. He says, and it happened that while he was praying alone, so he's alone praying, the disciples were with him. And he questions them, saying, who do the people say that I am? Now, this passage goes on right after this. I mean, it's an extended passage where then he goes on after they answer that you're the Messiah. He then goes on and tells them all these terrible things that are going to happen, that he's going to die, that he's going to be crucified, and he's going to leave. And then he tells them that they are going to suffer as well. And that's where you get the famous passage of Luke where he says that you, telling the disciples, you need to daily take up your cross and be willing to die daily with the most horrific death for me and follow me daily, right? That's, that's, but the precursor to it, again, what is Jesus doing? He's in prayer. For an extended time and he's in prayer and that's when he comes up with this so this is like the most difficult conversation he's going to have with the disciples up to this point is preceded by jesus spending significant amount of time in prayer and now clearly luke is trying to point out the he emphasizes almost a ridiculous amount how frequently jesus is spending time in prayer in this passage or in this book and it's clear he's trying to show that jesus's communion with his father is what was directing his life This is where his life came from. This is what directs his life, is the Father being present in his life. And this particular prayer time leads Jesus to have a very difficult conversation with the disciples. The most difficult one to date by that point. That he would explain to them what they were actually signing up for by following him. 
So in the previous passage, Jesus spends the night in prayer because of a major decision. Now he's spending this time in prayer, not because you could say it's major, but it's before a very difficult conversation that he needs to have. And again, do you notice a pattern forming here, right? Jesus' life is bathed in prayer. Jesus required time alone with his Father. That was the rhythm of his life. For big decisions, for small decisions, for daily life, for rest, for rejuvenation, but mostly to commune with his Father. It was just the rhythm of his life. And if Jesus required these times, and he is God, how much more do we need regular times spent in the presence of our Father and Son and Spirit? Beyond just Bible reading and how fast we can get through a passage, though we need to read the Word, but time spent talking and listening to the Lord. Time spent in His presence communing with Him. All right, so now let's jump to Luke chapter 11. Here in verse 1, he's going to say, One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Now, I love this picture of Jesus praying as we can see that Jesus didn't only pray in times of isolation. But here in this pact, which was his usual practice of solitude, but here we see just like at, at the baptism when he was praying, that Jesus is also praying when other people are around. This is just his way of life. Again, don't fall into the yeah, yeah, Christian trap where we just go, yeah, 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 I know that I see it. Look with fresh eyes as you look at the scripture and see Jesus and look at how he lived his life. We are called to live in love like him. This is his way of being. Time with the Lord is not only a morning quiet time or an evening prayer time. It is throughout his day. It permeates his day of him engaging with the Lord. And in this instance, his disciples are watching him pray. And when he finishes, they ask him how to pray. Now, here's the question. Do you think the disciples knew how to pray? Now, remember, who are the disciples? These are observant Jews. Being observant Jews, it means they would have prayed thousands of times in their, adult, in their lives by the time they were adults. They would have been doing all the prayers of the day that Jewish men would do from the third, the sixth, and the ninth hour prayers that were common for all Jews. For us, that would be, what is that? That's uh, uh, noon, three, and 6 p.m. for us today. The three prayer times of the Jewish people that they would have engaged in their whole lives on top of long Sabbath prayers and all the festivals were just days of prayers. These guys were prayer pros. They knew how to pray. They could pray you under the table. And yet, here they are asking Jesus, teach us how to pray. That means they saw something in Jesus in his prayer life that they didn't experience on their own. They saw a reality to the way Jesus spoke to his father that was different from the way they had done it. And they wanted the experience that Jesus experienced with his father. And so they say, teach us how to pray. And so Jesus, then he teaches them in this passage, and we call it the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus, when he does this, it starts in verse 2. He's going to say to them, when you pray, notice what he says, when you pray. There's an assumption built in there, right? The assumption is that they are praying. So that's the first assumption. He says, when you pray, he says, say this. This is how you should pray. He says, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your, or sorry, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. He tells them to actually say this specific prayer. 
And again, this is Luke's version of it. Now, when Matthew tells this prayer, he adds a few extra words to it, kind of the extended version in Matthew chapter 6. So we know kind of the context for it. But clearly Jesus would have taught this prayer on multiple occasions and in slightly different forms. But here when he gives this prayer, he's not expecting them to pray it as some formulaic waste of time. In Matthew 6, Jesus also also gives a teaching about how we are not to give vain prayer requests to God and just repeat endless words over and over again. So clearly Jesus does not see this prayer as some formulaic way of just repeating words that don't have meaning. He says, when you pray, pray this way. And I just want us to, we're not going to break it down entirely. That'll be a future sermon. But I just want us to look briefly at it. And let's look at what Jesus says. So he starts in verse 2 and he says, when you pray, say, Father. So first, acknowledging that they have a Father in heaven. Next, hallowed, so emphasizing the holiness of God and, and how beautiful and wonderful he is. But verse 2, he says that he prays, pray that God's kingdom comes, right? Pray your kingdom come. Now, the context of this we have in Matthew 6. So this isn't just saying Jesus come quickly. That's not what this prayer is about, though it could include it. But the context of Matthew 6 is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so he's asking for, the the prayer here is us asking God, your kingdom come, not just bring uh, us to heaven, not just end the world early, but bring heaven to earth. May your kingdom infiltrate earth. May your will infiltrate earth. May your reality be our reality here on earth. Not just getting us into heaven, but getting heaven into us, as N.T. Wright likes to say. Right? That this is the idea that God, bring your heaven to earth. That we can experience your intention for humanity here and now, not just then and there. Right? That's where he's saying, your kingdom come. So are we actually praying that regularly? Your kingdom come, Lord. Verse 3, he says, we're to pray for our daily provision to come from him, our daily bread to come from God. Not that we have so much that we no longer need him, but we pray for the daily bread that requires us to be dependent upon him. And obviously, this is a reference to the Exodus. If you know that story where the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, and every day God would provide manna, and he would give just enough for the day. And if they took more than they could eat for that day, it'd be spoiled by the next day. God required that they have complete dependence upon them. And Jesus said we need to be daily relying upon him. And then in verse 4, he says we need to repent of our own sins. Right? And we need to ensure there's no bitterness in our hearts towards others. And then lastly, that we did invite God to help keep us holy and pure to avoid sin and temptation. Now, I love this prayer. And sadly, so many Christians today, I feel like we think this prayer is too old-fashioned or it's, it's formulaic or maybe we think it's too Jewish or Catholic, whatever we think. And so I know most Christians don't actually pray much through this. And I think there's a, that, that's a, my goal today isn't to get us to pray this prayer. But there's a reason this prayer is here that Jesus actually says in verse 2, when you pray, say this. I think often the evangelical church, we've lost the power of these words because we're so, we're so against anything formulaic or liturgical sometimes. And we miss out on the beauty and the power of this. That Jesus is asking us to align our hearts to his, to see the beauty of the Father, acknowledge his holiness, ask for his kingdom to come, and then to, come to, to proclaim that we want to daily be reliant upon him. That we don't want to walk in sin. And we need to forgive others. And I love this, specifically this part, that we need to daily be coming to him for our daily bread. You know, for much of my life as a missionary, as we've lived our lives, daily bread meant that every day we were reliant upon God for finances. We didn't have a salary, never knew where it was coming from. And our daily bread was, Lord, how do we pay the bills this week? How do we get food this month? Like we were daily depending upon God in that way. And sometimes it is finances, but it can be so much more than that. It can be so much more, especially today, like in America, where our lives have become so comfortable for many of us that often we're not daily dependent upon God. 
In fact, I think that's a really dangerous place for the American church to be right now is where we get too comfortable, where we trust in our own strength and our own power or God's strength and power from the past that has carried us through and put us in our current situation where it feels like we don't actually need him anymore where we're trusting of what God did long ago when we, had a good, when we got the good job that now pays our benefits or when we had the baby that we've been praying for years for or when we retired with enough money that now money isn't a problem for us. And instead, we should be living in a place of deep dependency upon God where we're so dependent that if Jesus doesn't show up, if the Spirit's not evident that day, where we fall flat on our faces because we need him so much, where we're living our lives trusting in him. I honestly think this is one of the biggest problems in the American church today. With American Christianity, we've become so comfortable. We're often idolized comfort and security to such a degree that the chief goal of many of our lives is to not need anything from anyone, including God. We try to get so much comfort and so much security that we don't need anyone for anything. Even when, as a church, we've had money for people, often people don't want to ask for it because people don't want to ever be in need of anyone else. We don't put ourselves in the position where we're moving outside of our strengths and our giftings. We seldom engage with people who are different from us or different views than us, that think different from us. And we no, often no longer need the daily bread from the Lord because we've created such bubbles of safety and security and comfort around us. And we're seldom stretching to the point of truly needing him today. One of the main reasons we talked about before where I think so many Christians today have become functional binatarians instead of Trinitarians, where we don't need the Holy Spirit, is because we've told God, thanks God, but I've got it now. Thanks for setting me up good. I'll see you when you come back. Right? We feel so comfortable sometimes. And, and personally, I don't want a day to go by where I live it all within my own strength. Though I admit that too many of those days do pass, but I want to live my life increasingly dependent upon the Father, seeking his kingdom here on earth for my own life, for my family, and for the lives of people around me, especially for the world around me, for my neighbors, and, and trusting God for words to speak to neighbors, trusting God for how to help coworkers or my kids or my family, and, and learning in him to know, or leaning into Jesus to know him and how to care for the people who are hurting all around me. This is, I want to be leaning into this place. And, and right now, I want to be honest, for me, a big area that just got hit with us this week, got turned upside down, is within my own care for my parents. I mean, they're actually here this morning that they're joining our church, which is awesome. But some of you may have been here back in June when I stood up in this place and I declared a beautiful praise report that my father, who's been under cancer and their pancreatic cancer with given terrible diagnosis after over a year of, 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 of prayer and, and chemo, intense chemo and surgeries and pain was declared cancer-free back in June. And I rejoiced with you. And we just found out this week that the, the numbers have now more than just gone up and up and up, and they're higher than when he was first diagnosed, and it looks like the thing's back, and we just found out, and man, we're reeling from that information. It sucks. And right now, I need the daily bread of the Lord. I'm being honest with you. I didn't move back to America last year so we could watch my family disappear on me. We moved after entire life overseas to be with family. I'm like, Lord, I need your daily bread for me. I need your daily bread to be with my parents and to support them and love them in this place of pain. I'm like, Lord, I need you right now, Lord Jesus. Right? And, and we need to be in a place where we need God. We can't get to the place and live in that place where we're living in comfort and where we stop being in that place of our daily bread. And there's not a day that goes by that I don't pray this prayer with my boys. Every single night we sit down and we say, God, our Father who is in heaven, wonderful and hallowed is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We need you, Jesus, in our life today. 
and not just as a rote prayer, though I'm sure my boys sometimes feel like that's that way. We pray it all the time. But I want to increasingly experience his life in my life. I want to increasingly experience his presence, a life that his spirit just permeates every aspect of my life. And that means I need to grow in the ways that Jesus grew. I need my life to reflect more of his beauty. I need for him to be, I need to become more dependent upon him, not just for my daily bread, but for my hourly bread, my, my minute by minute bread, that the spirit would continue to strengthen me. You know, because Jesus lived in such a constant place of awareness of the presence of God. That's just where he lived in that place of prayer. I love it. John Ortberg, he says this in his, his book, The Me I Wants to Be. He says, the goal of prayer is not to get good at praying as many people think. The goal of prayer is, to not, is not to try to set new records for how much time we spend praying. But the goal of prayer is to live all of my life and speak all of my words in the joyful awareness of the presence of God. I want more of that in my life, that that the times that I spend alone with God, yes, are beautiful, but they're also there to continue to keep me in that place of the daily beautiful awareness of the reality of the presence of God that is with me throughout the day. That That his life is increasingly impacting my life in all areas of life, whether I'm buying groceries at the store, if I'm praying for someone, if I'm chatting with a neighbor when I get the mail, if I'm sitting in silence with my parents as we just grieve this, this crazy realities we're trying to figure out what's next. Or this week we were with our home group this past week and and one of our members is going through intense pain and we just sat there with the tears just fell from their eyes. And remember, as they're sitting there sharing, I just keep praying over and over again, Lord, may you help us to be your hands and feet to this person. Show us right now how we can support this person as a community. How do we come around them and love them in their place of pain and hurting right now, right? The whole time just praying like, Lord, help us to love the way that you love. This must become more and more the reality of our life. And I suck at it. I'm going to be honest. I'm just growing. I'm just taking small steps as we go. But it is so beautiful to see God's empowering presence become more and more a reality in our lives. Or I love Dallas Willard, another guy, obviously, I quote a lot. And I'll keep quoting him a lot. I'm sorry if you don't like him. But uh, anyways, uh, another quote from him I love. His definition of prayer is this. He says, prayer is simply talking to God about what we're doing together. And I love this definition because it's, it's obviously not all-encompassing of a definition. No human words are, but it describes so much of Jesus' prayer life. That Jesus is, is just simply talking to God about what we're doing together, about partnering with the Father, constantly communing with Him for the sake of the kingdom. Jesus made such a priority of spending time with His Father, being strengthened by Him. And I'm convinced, this is why I started the way I did, I'm convinced we cannot allow our phones and social media to control our lives. We have to control them. So put your phone to bed before you go to bed. Wake up and spend some time with Jesus before you go and let the world let wake you up and let the algorithms control your day. Let the Spirit speak life into your life in the mornings. May we grow in becoming more like Jesus. Because the reality is that as Jesus demonstrates, it's, prayer is, is just so much more than solitude in one or two times a day of meeting with him, but it permeated his whole life. And yet most of us are so distracted and busy that we don't even recognize God and what he's doing in the day around us. We wouldn't even know it if he showed up and slapped us because we're in such chaos of all that we do in the busyness of our life. And we have to be able to slow down a bit. And to recognize the joy of the God with us, of seeing him in the midst of the ordinary and the beauty of what's going around as we live the life that Jesus lived. Now, a few years ago, I preached a message here and I shared this story that I'm going to share right now, but I just want to bring it back again. Um, 
And that's because to me, it's just so significant to that. And it's a message that it came out of, I was reading John Ortberg's book, uh, the, what is it? Uh, the Life You've Always Wanted, about nine years ago. And in that, he tells a story. And, and he was talking about the story of he was visiting his mentor, a little jealous, it was Dallas Willard, and he was talking to him, and uh, he was sharing with him the struggles that he was going through at the time with his being a pastor and ministry and everything else. And he asked him the question, he said, how do I get a healthy spiritual life? And his mentor, Dr. Willard, he said to him, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. That's it. He goes, what else? He goes, no, that's it. Do that and everything will change. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life because hurry is the greatest enemy of the soul. Hurry will destroy you. It destroys souls. And, and he described it as hurried sickness. And today, more than ever, I believe we're living in hurried sickness, where we have this place where it's destroying so much of our lives. And in fact, John Mark Comer just wrote a book out of that quote called Ruthless Elimination of Hurry that came out last year that I, I would highly recommend. Um, but I had never recognized how hurried sickness, my, how much of this I had in my life until JJ was born. And there was an incident where I was driving with JJ. At the point, I was a pretty aggressive driver. Overseas, they don't do defensive driving classes. You take offensive driving classes, right? You drive intensely, not defensively. You get an accident if you use American style of driving. But uh, I was driving, and I mean, driving to me is always kind of like a video game. It's always trying to beat everyone else in traffic, right? And always seeing how quick you can get anywhere, even if you're not in a hurry. And uh, anyways, I was driving, and I was turn making a turn towards our home, and JJ was about three or four months old in the, in the car seat in the back. And the, the light was turning yellow. And again, in South Africa, you have like five seconds after the light turns yellow to keep going through, right? So the light had turned yellow. I'm putting on the gas pedal to go forward as the car in front of me clearly is going to go forward. And for some reason, this idiot slams on their brakes the last second. And so I'm, rowing, I'm speeding up and I, as fast as I can, slam on the brakes, screaming out loud as I'm almost smashing into the back of this car. I hit the brakes so hard. I'm yelling in frustration. JJ's getting slammed in his car seat in the back of it. And he wakes up screaming his head off. And I'm there angry at this person like what's wrong with you and in that moment all of a sudden just instant realization james james what's wrong with you at the time i had been again, reading uh, going through a course from, from willard at that time where he had talked about the discipline of slowing down and the danger of hurried sickness and just in that moment the lord spoke so clearly you need to deal with this you are not in a healthy spot. And so I said, okay, Lord. So I, I kind of went with a nuclear approach, and I don't recommend my approach because it may be too much for some, but uh, I sometimes I'm kind of an all-in kind of guy. I just pick one or two of these that might be valuable, but I just kind of went all in, and I said, okay, Lord, I'm going to deal with this issue of hurriedness in my life. And then I decided I'm now going to stop at every single yellow light, which in South Africa was crazy because no one does that except that one dude in front of me. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna all, I decide not that. I'm going to always choose the slower lane in traffic. Always choose the slowest lane. And the hardest one of all is when I go to the grocery store, I'm going to choose the longest grocery line to get in. Because that was one of my hardest ones to deal with at the time. Because I was one of those people that sees every time you get there, it's kind of a little bit stressful. You're checking all the lines. You're calculating the age of the person checking out groceries. You're seeing how many <laughs> items are in all the people in front of you. And you're making a little calculation. And then but if once you finally pick your choice after determining it, you're then constantly making sure that no one that comes after you is walking out of the store before you do. And if they did, you're an utter failure, right? No one, I might be myself be the only one in that place. But that's where I was at. And so I decided I'm going to take the longest line. Even if there's an empty counter, I'm going to let someone else go. I have to deal with this. And on top of that, I'm not ever going to check my phone when standing in line or at the doctor's office, right? Put all that together, whew, it was a rough six months. But I knew I had to do this, and I said, I'm going to do it until it's no longer a discipline, until this becomes part of my life. 
And I, again, I, I didn't do great at it, but it began to be part of my life to the point that my wife was no longer angry at me for my driving too aggressively, but it used to be a common thing. She's like, James, would you put away your stupid discipline? James just got to get a nap. Get in that lane. It's empty. Go, right? She, or I'm in the grocery store. James, just take the slowest line. Get home. I need to cook dinner, right? And so, wonderful woman. I was just like, it just became part of, of my life in that way of doing it. And I began to recognize the fruit of it was incredible because what began to happen is I'm again, my heart slowed down. I began to be at rest. I began to enjoy times alone. I began to be at the place where I could actually sit in restfulness and peace instead of constantly running and running. But I had to beat back so hard on that hurriness in my life and try and kill it because it was controlling me up to that point. But something amazing happened in that process. I began to have time for the Lord and for others in ways that I never recognized before. I'd lay awake in the middle of the night and no longer was that an act of just frustration and anger, but instead, wow, what an incredible opportunity, uninterrupted, just sit and pray and be with the Lord. I'd be driving in my car, instead of being annoyed at who is faster, I get to sit with the Lord and pray. I'd be in a, a checkout line and just sitting there and actually, wow, I don't have to be on my phone. I can talk to people or I can get to know people or I can sit here and do this crazy thing called ask God how I can be praying for the people around me. My whole life kind of transformed in that process as I was able to slow down and make space for God to speak to me about what he was doing in the world around me. I was able to get off the hamster wheel. And I'm not saying we should be lazy. Jesus had a very full schedule. He was very busy by American standards. But yet, he took time and he took space to be with the Father, to be alone. And people felt that he was, they were seen and when Jesus was around. And as I close, I, I want to encourage us to consider the main things that were spoken of today. So one, is your phone and social media usage robbing you of the joy of a life in Christ? And if so, do you need to keep it away from your bed? And I, my answer would be yes, but that's for your own, your own consideration. But two, are we following Jesus' example and prioritizing times of prayer with him? Not just in the morning or evenings, but throughout the day as well. And three, are there areas of our lives where we acknowledge hurry sickness, where you can recognize that you're just flowing through so fast through life that you actually aren't able to be present in those times with your family, kids, neighbors. You don't even have time to stop and talk to someone because you're so rushing to the next thing. All right. Now, some of you are, might be doing great in these areas. And that amen, lead, excuse me, lead the way for the rest of us. Keep going. But if there's an area that God's highlighting, I encourage you to, to, to press into that. And so we're going to take communion now. And as we do, I want us again to come back to the beauty and remember that Jesus, the God-man, fully God and fully human, he is the one saying these words. And he is the one that is calling us to a life where we don't just say this as a way of remembering what he did, but we actually learn what does it mean to live the way that he has lived. And so Jesus, he says that he took the bread and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so let's take the bread as a reminder that God's body was broken for us, that we could be with him. The Bible says in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so, Jesus, we take this cup as a reminder of your sacrificial death on the cross and your blood poured out for us, that because of your death, we now can live and live a life of abundance in you, Jesus.
So, Father, we just say thank you, Lord. Thank you for the, for the life that you've called us to live, a life of joy, experiencing your presence, the reality of who you are. Help us, Lord, to not in any way move out of places of shame, but to move out of places of longing to know you more and to, to partner with you in prayer and in our lives of seeing people, not just our own lives, but those around us, seeing people come to know you. Lord, help us to grow in our dependency upon you in prayer and in life and in each step that we take. And may we truly be your witnesses, Lord, that people would see our lives and through seeing us, they see you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father. Break through our hurriedness. Break through our addictions, Lord, and reach us and carry us deeper into your presence and your life.